Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. When Rob Leandro was an eighth grader, parents, children, and school districts from five low-income rural counties in North Carolina filed a lawsuit against the state alleging the children in those areas were not receiving an adequate public school education as required by the state constitution. That was in 1994. Today, 30 years later, Rob Leandro is an attorney with the law firm Parker Poe, and yet... Disposition of the lawsuit, known as the Leandro case, remains unresolved. It's been hung up in the courts for decades. Last year, Superior Court Judge James Ammons, calling for North Carolina to spend $677 million to fulfill two years of an eight-year, $5 billion court-approved remedial plan that would run through 2028. So, but that is being that is being challenged by legislative leaders and others on the grounds that the judge did not have the authority to issue that ruling. Rulings in the Leandro case have come down in 1997 and 2004, and the state Supreme Court ruled in 2022 that a trial judge could order the state to transfer funding. Yet tomorrow, the North Carolina Supreme Court will take up the case again. In advance of that, we look back on the origins of this case, whether the foundation for the suit remains, and what's at stake. And we hear from people on both sides of the argument. Andos Helms, WFAE's education reporter, is here to help guide us through this, along with Ann McCall, an attorney and constitutional scholar who submitted several amicus briefs over the years supporting the plaintiffs in the Leandro case. Welcome to you all. Good morning. Morning. And as we go through the program, Matt Ellenwood will become part of this conversation. He is with the North Carolina Justice Center, where he is director of the Education and Law Project. They are opposed to the state Supreme Court rehearing this case and advocate for the lower court's original ruling to stand. I think I got that right. Did I, Matt? That's right, Mike. Because this is very confusing. And Mitch Kokai is also with us this morning. He's senior uh, political analyst for the John Locke Foundation. They favor the high court taking a second look, give or take. I get that impression from your body language. Am I right? Well, I'm glad that the court is taking up the case to talk about subject matter jurisdiction, since there seems to be some sort of confusion about whether there is jurisdiction the case itself, uh, we're of multiple minds, but we can get into that. Okay. So, Anna Andos Helms, I'm going to start with you. And assuming that I got my summarization of the history of this relatively correct, let's flesh it out a bit and buckle in, everybody, because this is bewildering and intensely difficult to follow and understand, and we will do our best to make it understandable. Here we go. Uh, this case was filed in 1994 and claimed that the children in poorer counties were not receiving the same level of educational opportunities as students in wealthier counties in the public schools. And the school districts in question were Cumberland, Hoke, Robeson, Vance, and Halifax counties. We know that the courts decided in their favor on multiple occasions, but the money involved has yet to be dispersed. And it's a lot of money. In fact, Several of the original counties have since dropped out of this suit. And Doss Helms, why? Um, 
Now that's actually probably more of an Anne McCall okay, question Anne, because there are the uh, the original low wealth counties, but then almost immediately after that, because at that time North Carolina was doing basically a straight per pupil. You know the the number of students you had determined more or less the the money you were getting, and the low wealth counties said, well the larger, wealthier counties can supplement that. They can tax their residents and they can bring this level of spending up to what it takes to give the kids the education that the state constitution guarantees them. But then we had six, I believe, um, larger urban counties, including Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools, which was at the time the state's largest district. And they said, well, yeah, we got a pretty good tax base, but you have to take into account that we don't just have a lot of students. We have a lot of students with additional challenges the term okay, that was well, used let, a let, lot let's not get into that we're going to but... get into that let's not get into the weeds okay. let, me, let me lay the groundwork here so Anne, since Anne mccall is the better answer of the question why these poorer counties the original counties dropped out why did they drop out have things changed in those counties since 1994 that they really don't need this anymore what's going on so actually all of the original plaintiffs are still in the case so those poor school districts that um began the litigation, have stayed with it since the very beginning, um, which is really kind of amazing to think that um, this litigation that's been going on for, as y'all have mentioned, 30 years has been on the backs of these poor school districts to, to fund the litigation. So they are still in. Uh, the, the change in parties that has occurred over the time of the litigation has been in the uh, more resource districts that um, had joined the lawsuit, and then in 2006, they they most of them stepped out, except for Charlotte Meck could not because uh, they also became a defendant in the case um, with a particular claim by the Penn intervenors um, about the the opportunities in Charlotte Meck. Okay, so why did the wealthier counties drop out then? So the, um, so if we're thinking of this lawsuit that went from 1994, we're now in 2024, around in 2006, uh, there was not a sense of a remedy coming down anytime soon. Um, uh, this was still in Judge Manning's courtroom. Uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg schools was on the witness stand a lot for what they were doing in their schools. And so I would, you know, people have maybe different opinions about why the, the um, uh, better resource districts got out. My sense at the time was that they just weren't seeing that it was from that staying in it was helping them, that the plaintiffs were pulling the weight of this, that uh, those issues would continue to be resolved without them being in the courtroom with it. Yeah, and we'll probably so, loop back to this, but at that point in time, Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools was paying a lot to its lawyers to basically get spanked publicly by Judge Howard Manning repeatedly and right. vigorously and seeing yeah. it covered extensively. So I think Charlotte Mecklenburg would have said, hey, we're just out of this if they could have. But um, and again, th this show really should come with a warning, you know, could cause confusion and head spinning and frustration because how you have a, a, a school district that is a plaintiff and a defendant is um, this is an unusual case. Yes, it is. And you mentioned Howard Manning, a judge who really stirred the waters, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But the original justice uh, who played a role in all this is uh, uh, Burley Mitchell in 1997 uh, he, he, you know, on the Supreme Court. He delivered the defining decision confirming that the state had an obligation 
under the Constitution, the state Constitution, to provide children with a sound basic education. And his decision went on to define that. How did he define it? I'm not sure who to ask that of. Anne McCall. So the court had to look at the language in the Constitution. And um, in North Carolina, uh, we are really unique among the states in having education as a part of our Declaration of Rights, just like the right to vote, the right to jury of peers. So they looked at our language and what part of what they had to decide is whether that language gave some floor of an education, some level of adequacy to an education. Um, the state at the time was arguing that if we give you access to education, that's all you get. You know, the door, the door to the schoolhouse is open. We've met our constitutional obligation. So Leandro, what we now call Leandro One, was really important in creating this standard of a constitutional education, of a sound basic education. They did reject the notion of um, absolutely equal between the counties because they noticed, again, going back to our own language in our constitution, that uh, that counties can add to what the state gives. And so that, that's why when you look around the state, the education system in Charlotte-Mecklenburg looks very different than the one in, say, Halifax. Um, so they did not take on that issue. Uh, but that's, uh, and that, that definition of a sound basic education is still there, you know, right? We, they, haven't, they haven't changed that. It's, um, we've just moved on to these other issues of has that standard been violated by the state, which is really who's being sued here, and if it has been violated, what are the remedies for that? And so that's how the case has progressed since that initial ruling. So Mike, 30, it, it, go ahead. Me, it might be Mitch. helpful to add that the a little bit of background on the context of the 1994 filing, this was taking place when a number of states were having lawsuits where plaintiffs were saying that their schools were not being funded adequately. So this was not happening in a vacuum. North Carolina was one of a number of states where this had happened. And I think the initial thought was the, the courts would say, yes, the schools are being underfunded. You've got to spend X amount more, or you've got to spend money on this type of program. That initial 1997 ruling written by Burley Mitchell did say that there is a right to access to a sound basic education, but didn't say anything about you have to spend more money. And that's probably one of the reasons why the case has continued to go on for so many more years, because as the case has gone back to different levels of courts, there has been discussion of, okay, well, what does it mean to meet this right? No. How, how would that actually play out on the ground? What does it mean in terms of money? And that has been something that has gone back and forth and has taken many, many twists and turns. But we never got that ruling initially saying the state has to spend more money. It was you have to provide access to a sound basic education. And then we've spent the last couple of decades plus deciding, well, what does that really mean? And I um, think that's the big thread that connects all of this craziness. And that is why this matters to people is because it is basically the question of, A, what is our obligation to provide equal education, equal opportunity, adequate education and opportunity, and how does that connect to public spending? Because that is a really complicated question. It's not as clear as, you know, increase your spending by 20% and you'll get a 20% gain in whatever results you're looking at. It's, you know, money is not all of it, but it's also clear that 
it's very hard to make big changes without more money. So that's what, we're talking about public money and public education, and that matters to a lot of people. Maybe it's my limited understanding of how the courts in America work, Anne McCall, but it seems to me that it, it, we've always been taught that you start in the lower courts. If you want to continue to appeal, you might be lucky enough to get all the way to a, a Supreme Court in a state or at the U.S. Supreme Court, and when that happens, their decision is it. It's over. It's done. You go back home, and you lick your wounds, or you celebrate. Uh, but this has been rambling around the courts, has paid, as of tomorrow, well, have paid four visits to the state Supreme Court. Why? Five. Why? So some of it is the sequencing. Um, uh, so as Mr. McCoy was saying, uh, uh, Kokai was saying, sorry, uh, yeah, what we got at the very beginning was an explanation of what the right was. But in fact, the court, the trial court hadn't looked at whether or not there was a violation. Like they had to set what the standard was. Then we go and we look to see that if there's been a violation, that goes on for a while. I think if we're trying to speed the process up, what's important is um, that in 2018, the state um, that now we kind of think of as more the executive branch based on how the, the case is played on, agreed to work with the plaintiffs for a statewide comprehensive remedial plan. And so this is that connection to the money, but it's more than money. It's saying if, if there is a standard of education that applies across the state, what is, how do we do that? And so um, the, court, the trial court agreed to an independent consultant. That consultant worked with the courts and the plaintiffs in the state. They come up with this plan. And that plan has a big, it's an eight-year plan, has a big number attached to it. That's the spending. Um, it did look like last in 2022, we had reached the decision that in fact, the trial court had the authority to do a specific thing regarding that funding, which was because the uh, court had, the, the legislature had not given the funding. Let me stop you, we have to stop. Uh, that's the way it works. Uh, we'll come back and I'll let you finish that idea in a moment or two with Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on Listener Funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. We are trying to clear away the cobwebs and, and go th and cut the underbrush to understand the Leandro case, which appears before the state Supreme Court yet again uh, tomorrow after 30 years in the court. Uh, this case is still unresolved, and it's very complex, and uh, we'll talk about why it's in the courts tomorrow as well in a moment. Ann Dawes Helms is here, our education reporter for WFAE News. Ann McCall also with us, uh, an attorney with the uh, and a North Carolina constitutional scholar who has filed amicus briefs in favor of the plaintiffs in this. Matt Ellenwood is also here. We'll hear from him in a moment, I promise you, Matt. Uh, he's the director of the Education and Law Project at the North Carolina Justice Center. And Mitch Kokai is a political analyst from the John Locke Foundation. So you were in the middle of trying to explain something about the 2022 decision here. And right. go ahead, Emma Call. So there had been a, an agreement at the trial court level on a comprehensive plan, a price tag that went with that plan. The General Assembly did not fund the, the plan. And so the trial court had ordered 
the state through the state controller to transfer funds out of the surplus funds of the state. And the question that went up to the uh, Supreme Court for the 2022 decision, Leander 4, was whether the trial court judge had that authority to make that transfer. And the court said yes. So we have a 4-3 opinion. Um, and now we really have to kind of take note of the politics. That was a 4-3. Um, Democrats were the fourth. The Republicans were the three. That's November of 22. We have elections come January of 2023. It's a new court. It's a 5-2 Republican court that sees it differently. And in essence, what we're seeing is a repeat of the issues that had been brought to the court for the 2022. Um, so this question of whether the trial court judge could do that is really coming back. Okay. In the interim. Uh, the case is kicking around Judge uh, Howard Manning's courtroom. He spent five years trying to figure out uh, how to make this work and issuing reports and ordering the establishment of public school pre-K programs, which is not in the Constitution and I don't think appeared in the original order, but I guess at some point we decided that pre-K was paramount in uh, improving educational outcomes along the way. So uh, I guess this goes to Ann Doss Helms. Did, did, did Judge Manning essentially muddy the waters here by expanding the case beyond what its original parameters were and, and that has slowed things down even more? Well, he certainly wrote a long and complicated report and it addressed things like it said that per-pupil funding is constitutional. It talked a lot about uh, the needs of at-risk students, putting a certified teacher in every classroom, basically all these big subjects in education. Um, and, and at some point in that report, he also did something that was quite controversial. And I'm not sure, again, there were a lot of Manning documents at that time, but one of the things he suggested was that maybe to get a sound basic education, you could just shift the money, that the problem might not, and I'm taking this from the observer's coverage, this was even before I was on the education beat, but he suggested that the problem was not a shortage of money, but that it was not spent wisely. And he said, well, maybe we shift the money from college-bound affluent students to minority students, low-income students, the ones who have these special needs. And he said the Constitution does not guarantee a prep school for entry into Yale or Harvard. So um, this, again, just almost everything that he wrote or that anybody has written, there's something to love and something to hate, depending on your perspective. So let me, let me I, bring Matt Ellenwood into this conversation. He's the director of education and law of the Education and Law Project at the North Carolina Justice Center. And we just referred, or Ann McCall just referred to the fact that, the, that when the state Supreme Court made a decision the last time, it was just months before there was an election, the outcome of which flipped the majority from Democrat to Republican on that high court. And so that essentially is why they're taking this up again. They're rehearing this because there may be a difference of opinion on the previous outcome of all this. In your organization, the North Carolina Justice Center said last October that it was deeply disturbed by this decision to disregard precedent and rehear the original landmark decision. You called it procedurally inappropriate and would cause irreparable harm to the integrity of our state's judicial system as well as our public schools. Why? Well, when you think about the rights that we've been talking about today, um, it really sends a message to 
the people of North Carolina that those rights sort of hang on a thread based on the unfortunately partisan composition now. We used to not have partisan elected judges on the Supreme Court, but we changed that recently. Um, but the idea that your fundamental rights can change just based on the composition of the court is, um, I think, really concerning to me and I think very difficult for people to follow where you don't really know where things stand at any given moment and if they can change that quickly. We, we, you know, hearing people use these terms that we're rehearing these and revisiting these issues, you know, just as a lawyer, it really kind of goes against day one of what you learn in law school in terms of the importance of stare decisis and respecting precedent. There's always been a history of moving slowly and making changes and, and not completely overruling previous decisions, sometimes more, you know, tweaking them and, and making little changes. But it's very unusual and, and, you know, disturbing to me that to be completely rehearing something when nothing has changed procedurally or, fact, or factually since November of 2022, other than our students' needs have grown because they haven't gotten the resources that they've needed. And some of the, obviously there's a lot of issues coming off the pandemic. We see teacher vacancies, mental health needs increased, and there's really not been enough help coming from the state level uh, to deal with that. So this is also really concerning. We work with a coalition of folks who work with some of the at-risk student groups in, in, that have been laid out in Leandro over the years, students living in poverty, uh, multilingual learners and students with disabilities, um, and of course, students in, in impoverished counties. Um, and I think there was, you know, when this ruling came in November 2022, there were, you know, literally tears of joy that we were going to finally see some of these resources that we people have been fighting for for three decades. And then uh, just it was pretty, you know, obviously the morale impact of the fact that we're back rehearing this and it feels like helps not on the way at a time when our needs are growing um, is really hard for people to take. And I think, you know, also undermines their views of the of the judicial system. Uh, Mitch Kokai is with us from the John Locke Foundation. Would it be accurate to say that the John Locke Foundation is conservative in its outlook? Yes, yes. Uh, so, we, we tend to refer to ourselves as free market and limited government, but a lot of people okay. say that's conservative. So uh, what is your view of the, of the uh, North Carolina Justice Center statement that this rehearing this case tomorrow would cause irreparable harm to the integrity of our state's judicial system? I mean, the Supreme Court's at all levels suddenly are reversing previous decisions. We watched that in the United States Supreme Court when the Dobbs case overturned Roe v. Wade and 50 years of, of uh, precedent. Uh, now we're seeing it here in North Carolina when they overturned uh, previous gerrymandering decisions of, of a previous court because of the flip during the election. Uh, is nothing ever settled? Can we run the country this way? The problem with this case is that nothing from the previous rulings actually settled anything. We've been discussing the fact that this case has been going on for 30 years because the rulings that have come out have never said anything definitively one way or another. You asked earlier about whether Judge Manning had muddied the waters, and actually the way that the trial played out in this case and all of the things that happened after that have helped contribute to why we're, we are where we are today. Back after the initial Leandro ruling, the case went to Judge Manning, so that was back in the late 1990s, and at that time, we still had the five low-wealth counties, we had the uh, higher-wealth counties, and a decision was made, okay, uh, how are we going to conduct a trial? Well, they just, uh, Judge Manning decided we're going to split 
the low wealth counties from the high wealth counties. And then for a trial for the low wealth counties, we're going to pick one county, Hope County, and have a trial based on its needs. And so Hope County was chosen as sort of the example for the low wealth counties. But that's the only trial that's ever happened in this case. And that's one of the reasons why there's a dispute today among Republican and Democratic justices and the plaintiffs and legislative leaders about what to even call this case. Most of us call it Leandro and the most recent ruling that came out in November of 2022 that we've been talking about is referred to uh, by the folks who want to call it Leandro as Leandro 4. But the Republican justices and the legislative leaders are saying, no, that ruling was actually Hoke County 3 because there was only one uh, Leandro ruling ever. And then all of the other rulings based on that initial trial should be considered Hoke County. And that's one of the reasons why the case is back. They're saying that a judge couldn't order a statewide remedy for all of North Carolina based on a trial that happened with, involving just one county now more than 20 years ago. Now, there's a healthy debate about whether that's true or not. The Democratic justices are saying, no, subject matter jurisdiction is decided. Uh, the judge did have the right to do this. But the Republican justices have been more skeptical about that when they had the order agreeing to bring the case back not actually officially a rehearing of exactly what's happened before, but but just dealing with this issue of subject matter jurisdiction. They said, look, your your ruling came out just before the 2022 election and you rushed through this whole matter of subject matter jurisdiction and didn't really deal with it. And that's one of the reasons why the Republican justices decided to bring it back. So uh, the simple answer to whether uh, this case was muddied years ago is yes. And that's one of the reasons why it's back again. This is, uh, this is where my, my, my head's going to explode because this, it is so complex. This, tomorrow's case, as I understand it, is not necessarily about money. It's not about how to fund education or whether education is equal across the state. It is about whether a judge had the right to make a decision. It's about jurisdiction. But money is involved. We're talking about billions of dollars here I involved in all of this. So if the Constitution, the state Constitution, ensures the right to a quality public education, but that is not possible because the legislature has underfunded the public schools, Matt, aren't the, aren't the courts supposed to get involved in this? I mean, there are people who are saying that there's no jurisdiction here. The court should stay out of this. This is the legislative matter. But aren't the courts supposed to get involved? Matt. Yeah, certainly that's what's unusual about all this. You know, when we're talking about other fundamental rights in the Constitution, they don't require the same amount of resources to uphold them. You know, some of them are things that the state can't do, like abridge your right to free speech. But education is different where we have this fundamental right. I mean, obviously, if we spent zero, you'd be breaking, you'd be violating the Constitution. So it's it's a it's a difficult question of figuring out where the actual standard is. And just to put some of these numbers into context, if we were to fund this entire plan, because it's hard to understand, we're talking about $678 million at stake for years two and three of the plan and in the case right now and over $5 billion for the entirety of the plan. But if we were to impl implement the entire plan, North Carolina would move from 49th in school funding effort. That's the percentage of our gross domestic product that we dedicate towards public education, local public schools and charter schools. Um, we would move from 49th in the nation to 42nd. So we'd still be below average, but we would 
at least according to how the plan was developed, be at the constitutional minimum. So it would really move us up to the floor, but it's nothing extravagant, but it can be hard to understand what these numbers mean spread out at over 1.5 million children. Um, and it's all people in positions and nurses, counselors, therapists, teachers, teaching assistants. And so those things really add up really quickly. Um, so when we're throwing these big numbers around, I think it's important to remember that we'd still be well below the national average in terms of our school funding effort, even if we implemented the entirety of the plan. So again, Emma Call, the crux of the case that the high court is hearing tomorrow is about jurisdiction. But you wrote an article summarizing the judicial hijinks, uh, for lack of a better term, surrounding this case. And you say it boils down to a logical question. You say, how could the, the Supreme Court remand to the trial court with specific directors, directives, which they did, if the Supreme Court did not agree that the trial court had the authority to act upon them? A very sensible question. So given that question, uh, why would the high court reconsider this decision? Because they're going to be questioning not only the decision, but themselves. Right. I mean, they did issue an opinion that addressed subject matter jurisdiction, said that obviously they believe the trial court had it or they wouldn't have directed the trial court to recalculate the amount of funds needed and to direct the transfer. Uh, they made it clear that the, the trial court had that authority and should exercise it. You know, it's it, it's an unpleasant thing, I think, to recognize the degree of politics that have entered this case. Um, I like to point out that at the very beginning in the 1997 and 2004, those were partisan elections, and yet we had unanimous decisions from from a court from courts made up of Republicans and Democrats. Um, and the legislative um, interveners just entered into this case in 2021. And the issue of power, I mean, I just don't think we can talk about this case authentically without talking about this as a matter of power, that the General Assembly does not want the judicial system to have the power to transfer funds. And, you know, it's not just education. I think if you look at it through the power lens, then you can also look at the issues around uh, the cases involving um, partisan gerrymandering. Um, they did the same thing there where the 4-3 uh, the court had made a decision in the case Harper v. Hall. They asked for a rehearing with the new um, composition and they overruled it. So this sort of let's come back and and change our minds. Um, that's uh, we're we're seeing a lot of influence from the General Assembly, who's making a lot of arguments around power, uh, governors' issues around the the commissions. That's another power issue. Like that, you know, those of us who care about education, that's our lens. We just kind of think about this case longitudinally, but I think we also have to step back and look at it in comparison to the other things going on in our state. So the Education and Law Project has examined the claim that the courts lack jurisdiction, and you have unequivocally rejected that. Uh, and in a statement uh, that the project released, the state, the Education and Law Project released in 2023, you say that you see a, quote, pattern of obstruction and denial of the resources needed to uphold the constitutional right to education opportunities for the state's children, which has persisted for almost three decades. Are you saying that this pattern is more than foot dragging and more than just keeping this in the courts and never reaching a decision, that there's something else going on here? 
I think Anne's points are well taken around power. Um, and I think we've seen that there's just a different philosophy emerging amongst some legislators in terms of the value of public education. I think we've seen a real shift in recent years of people sort of saying things, denigrating teachers, denigrating public schools in ways that we never would have seen in the past as these issues have become more, much more polarized. Um, but, you know, I think that the history of the case has really been that the state, we keep determining that the state is violating the Constitution in terms of kids' education rights, but then we are they're being directed to come up with a plan. So I think the pattern of, of obstruction has been the plan has never really come in all these years. We've had fits and starts, but it's been 30 years, and only now did we actually get a comprehensive plan. To we have to take a break. There's another side to this. We'll get that in a moment in Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. We're talking about the Leandro case, which has been making its way through the courts, back and forth, up and down for 30 years. It's uh, before the Supreme Court again tomorrow. And Doss Helms is our education reporter at WFAE News. She joins us along with Ann McCall, attorney and a North Carolina constitutional scholar uh, who has filed amicus briefs for the plaintiffs in this case several times. Uh, Matt Ellenwood is the director of the Education and Law Project for the North Carolina Justice Center. He's with us along with Mitch Kokai, political analyst for the John Locke Foundation. When the Supreme Court last visited this in 2022, they ruled, ruled four to three that the courts can force the transfer of money uh, from, uh, from the state treasury to schools to fund their decision in, in this case. It should be noted that uh, State Senate Leader Phil Berger is among those who are against this, and his son, Phil Berger Jr., is a justice on the Supreme Court who wrote uh, in a dissenting opinion in that 2022 decision this action is contrary to our system of government, destructive of separation of powers, and the very definition of tyranny as understood by our founding fathers. Assuming, Mitch, that the John Locke Foundation agrees with that, why is he right? Well, this is the piece of the case that has really concerned us most, and that is going beyond whether the court should issue any kind of order on spending money. And there's an argument to be made about that one way or another. The initial spending order for $1.75 billion came when there was a budget impasse. Eight days after that order, the budget was finalized. Governor Roy Cooper signed it into law and more than a billion of the $1.75 billion was in the budget. So there's a debate about whether the courts should have... Uh, second-guessed what the political branch has thought about spending it. But the piece that really concerned us is this idea that the courts would be able to bypass the General Assembly, which is clearly under the Constitution the keeper of the purse, the one that decides when money gets appropriated. Yes, but if the courts, if the courts the have determined that the General Assembly is violating the Constitution by not adequately funding education, what, what course of that, what other choice do they have? The, the, the Constitution is clear that the General Assembly has the, the power of the purse. And in all previous rulings, when a, a court has said the state, you are in default or you have not met an obligation, here's what you need to do. That's where it ends. 
And McCall, McCall, you're a constitutional scholar. What's your take on that? You know, I think better than me is to look at the opinion of the court where the the court 4-3 in 2022 said, absolutely, there's that right. And so, you know, that's the law of the land right now is that so, um, there, there's, a, there's a delicacy, there's, there's a desire to not intrude any more than necessary. So a transfer was considered less intrusive than ordering the um, trial court to, I mean, ordering the, the General Assembly to make an appropriation. Um, so, you know, asked and answered, and we're just... So- yeah. So, so Matt, um, uh, I, I want to get back to this. I, I, this is about power. It's about jurisdiction. It's also about money. Let's get right down to it. It's about the money. Uh, and a lot of people believe that Republicans here and around the nation, along with an organization called ALEC, have been systematically working to undermine public education. You alluded to this earlier in in your earlier comment, and this is perhaps another example of that. The other side might say that the granting of opportunity scholarships and the expansion of charter schools gives parents and children more choice and lets them avoid perhaps substandard public education. Uh, But this whole idea that scholarships only pay part of the freight of of, of private education. So that what, what that's going to mean ultimately is that the kids who cannot supplement the scholarships will not end up going to private schools. They will stay in the public schools, which will allegedly become more substandard because that and the uh, siphoning of money to charter schools is taking money away from the public schools. And you have state leaders fighting the Leandro case, which wants to give more money to the public schools. How can we see this anything as anything but an attempt? to continue to underfund the public schools and move to something other than public education, Matt. All right. Um, Yeah, just to be clear, charter schools are public schools too, so they would benefit from- Yes, but they don't play on the same, they don't play on the same playing field as as public schools. They're not in the same league. Yeah, different rules, but they do, they would benefit from the funding um, at issue in this case, just as as well. yeah, I mean, hold on. They don't provide public transportation necessarily. They don't provide school lunches or school breakfasts necessarily. They don't play on the same playing field. Yes, that's correct. I'm just saying that they they have a, a stake in this case as well. Um, they're not, okay. but as, as opposed to the opportunity scholarship, which wouldn't be impacted by any of this. Um, you know, it does seem like Anne has talked about the strength of our commitment in our constitution to public education, and that's where the educational opportunities need to be upheld. So it does seem absurd to me that our plan for how we're going to provide opportunity through that public education system is to have students go to private school. Um, The recent expansion of the voucher program also kind of removes the facade of that, I think, where the program was originally targeted towards uh, lower income students, um, and it really was narrowly targeted that way. Over over time, that has expanded and income limits have been lifted. Now we're at the point of a universal voucher program where the wealthiest North Carolinians who already have their kids enrolled in private schools can now benefit from this program as well. So I don't think that we're, the whole point of these constitutional provisions is the legislature can't throw up its hands and say, we have substandard public schools, so we're going to abandon them we need to do the work that is required and and that is laid out in this plan that's been developed in the case in order to make these schools have the opportunities uh, 
uh, available that they're constitutionally required to have. So I just don't see how we can have this system of privatization as a way to uphold our commitment to public education. It doesn't really make any sense to me. Mitch, let me get your take on that same question. The funding for education, the public education, the traditional schools has gone up under the Republican leadership of the General Assembly. The arguments to the contrary have, have been wrong. The opportunity scholarship funding has been apart and separate from that. One of the key problems that we've had is that much of the debate about Leandro has been, hey, this is about education funding. Education is fun education funding is good, so we should support the Leandro case. But that's not really what the case has come down to. The case was originally about low wealth school systems trying to get more money. The state Supreme Court back in 1997 said, yes, every student has the right to a sound basic education, but we're not going to say that you're going to get more money. And then the, the case over the additional 20 plus years has been about, okay, well, how do we turn this access into a sound basic education into something tangible? Where, where does the rubber meet the road here? And that has been hard to decide. Uh, back also to the, the point about the forced money transfer, while the November 2022 ruling from the then 4-3 Democratic majority court was fine with that, there is a, an additional order that's blocking that from happening that isn't even up for debate at tomorrow's hearing. This is a, a, a challenge that came not from the General Assembly, but from the state controller who said, look, I can't do this. This is against my oath of office. I would be breaking the law if I moved mm -hmm. money from the Treasury without authorization from the General Assembly. This is a key separation of powers issue that the, the former state Supreme Court just didn't seem to address. And right now there is an order in place blocking any forced money transfer, but because the Court of Appeals agreed with the controller that, hey, you know, this is something that, that can't be done based on state law and the Constitution. But Ann, I thought the Supreme Court ruled, period, done. Whatever we say goes. The, the 2022 decision addressed the transfer, um, agreed that it was constitutional, addressed the issue um, raised by the state controller to the Supreme Court. So the uh, state controller was a part of the oral, oral arguments before that ruling. Um, and they um, removed the what was called a writ of prohibition that had been put in place by the Court of Appeals to keep the trial court judge from making that transfer. They removed that, they go back, they remand to the trial court to say, recalculate based on the last budget and then order that transfer. What then happened um, is there is this kind of shadow litigation going on that's actually a separate named case, separate docket number, um, and um, the Supreme Court, the same day that they issued their 2022 opinion, put it out, put out an order saying, you know, this case has been consolidated, but we're leaving it open for any future pleadings. And so the um, once the court composition changed, the defendant interveners and the state controller went back to the Supreme Court, not the Court of Appeals, but to the Supreme Court and asked them to um, put the writ that was the Court of Appeals had done back onto the case. And this new Supreme Court did that. Um, and um, Mr. 
Koki, uh, Kokai is right that that issue isn't in front of the court, right. uh, which is bizarre, right? Like it's um, regardless of what happens in these hearings, we have this order that was issued um, in March by the new Supreme Court, kind of as a standalone thing, and it's not in front of them. Um, so we still will not get clarity on uh, this very critical issue that um, Mr. Uh, Kokai is talking about. And there, there is yet another uh, thing muddying the waters here that we have yet to talk about. There's the question of conflicts of interest on the high court itself. Justice Philberger Jr. will be involved in a case being appealed in large part due to the efforts of his father, who is the state Senate majority leader, Philberger Sr., who believes the courts have no business in telling the state how to spend its money on education. That is power that belongs, he thinks, to the legislature. And then there is Justice Anita Earls, a Democrat, uh, whose legislative leaders earlier sought to have recused because she uh, she signed initial and amended complaints as an attorney for one set of plaintiffs in this case. Matt, should one side or the other or both recuse themselves? I think with the the burger situation, I think, you know, the rules on these conflicts and recusals are pretty, pretty arcane, you know, but I think there's always been this idea that you want to avoid the appearance of a conflict. And it is jarring to read these decisions coming from Phil Berger Jr. about the actions of Phil Berger Sr. And I think just for the average citizen sort of seeing that, it does add to the uh, political feel of of, uh, um, of what's happening in our court system. And I think that has there's some damage to that. Plus, plus when Phil Berger Jr. writes, this action is contrary to our system of government, destructive of separation of powers and the very definition of tyranny, tyranny, I'll say it again, tyranny, as understood by the founding fathers, that same that sounds rather radical coming from a Supreme Court justice whose job it is to uh, sort out these issues between the various branches of government. Am I wrong? Yeah, what we're talking about is trying to uphold the constitutional rights of North Carolina's children. So that does seem very hyperbolic to say that that an effort to do that is tyrannical. Um, you know, I think that one theme of that 2022 case, not necessarily legal, is enough is enough that for 30 years, the court has been directing the state to do more to provide educational opportunities for children, particularly those who are at risk. And they've really never even come up with a coherent plan. There's been some fits and starts, things like, you know, an an increased commitment to pre-kindergarten, the development of the Disadvantaged Student Supplemental Fund, which is a way to drive resources to lower wealth districts. Um, But the state has never so much as really come up with a plan of how we're going to uphold kids' constitutional rights, not to mention implement it. So that's why we are where we are, because the court had to go ahead and, and do that because the state wasn't. And so after 30 years, um, you know, we're, the, the court's obviously kind of stuck between two different constitutional provisions in terms of appropriations coming from the legislature versus this fundamental right to education. And they determined that they could not continue to have that right be violated after all this time of inaction on the part of the state. So, Mitch Koch, I'm very short on time, so make this as quick as you possibly can. I want to get your opinion on whether one side or the other should recuse themselves. I think all of the justices should hear this case. Uh, my sense of this latest uh, issue on recusal is that is the legal 
uh, equivalent of internet trolling. Back in 2022, there were requests for both Phil Berger Jr. and Anita Earls to recuse themselves. They both said no, which is their right. This time around, the requests came again. Anita Earls said no again, as is her right. Uh, Phil Berger Jr. decided to submit it to the full court, knowing that there were enough votes to allow him to be on there. And then the, the order that came out ended up having some back and forth between the, the Republicans on the court and Justice Allison Riggs. To me, it sounds like it's it's basically uh, some judicial infighting. They're all going to hear this case. They all should hear this case. So, Ann McCall, very quickly, because once again, I only have about a minute left. Uh, this case has been on the books for 30 years. They're going to hear it again tomorrow for the fifth time. When they hand down their decision, will that finally end it? Or is this just going to be part five of a 10-part series? No, it definitely will not end it. Um, <laughs> even if they decide that the trial court judge does not have subject matter jurisdiction for this comprehensive plan, it just means that there's going to be another way to look at it. And um, I have to give it to the plaintiffs who have been doing this for 30 years. I don't think they're going to stop. So, Andos Helms, 45 seconds left. NC Newsline describes itself as a nonpartisan nonprofit news organization. They say that they're going to reverse themselves tomorrow. Uh, and by all indications, that will deal, deal a massive, devastating, world-altering blow to K-12 education. Is that hyperbole? I think there's some hyperbole there. And I don't think there's going to be a decision tomorrow. But this has no, been a but... challenge as a reporter because every time you think it's over, I reported that it was over in 2004. So, you know, take my analysis for what it's worth. Okay. The show won't be on the air long enough to get to the end of this case, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Ann Doss Helms, our education reporter for WFAE News, Ann McCall, attorney for the North, and a North Carolina constitutional scholar, and Matt Ellenwood, director of the Education and Law Project at the North Carolina Justice Center, and Mitch Kokai, political analyst for the John Locke Foundation. Thank you all for helping us through this and for the hour. Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah Delia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org slash charlotte talks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.